0: Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Happy New Year. And welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Ackeson podcast on JustTheNews.com. I hope you'll check out all of the Just The News podcasts. You can go to JustTheNews.com and see the list of them on the homepage. Consider ordering my new bestseller, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism, Slanted is a nonpartisan look at the death of the news as we once knew it and what you can do about it. Today, we're going to have some fun looking at the most admired man and woman in the world, according to Gallup. This year, Donald Trump tops the list. Then we're going to take a deep dive that I hope you find fascinating into my Emmy Award winning investigation into the Red Cross and what happened behind the scenes. <laughs>
1: I shared this story and it almost crashed the ScoreMaster website. The average person has 97 points. That's right, 97 points. They can quickly add to their credit score, but they have no idea how to get there. ScoreMaster credit scientist discovered an algorithm that super boosts credit scores. Not a few points, but 97 points fast. Imagine 97 points on top of your current credit score if you're refinancing your home, buying a car, or applying for credit. So you have okay credit and you're buying a car. If you do, go to ScoreMaster first and boost your score. The average 61 points in 20 days or less. You could save nine grand on your car loan. And if you raise your credit just the average number before applying for a home loan, you could save almost 100 grand over the life of your loan. Now that's a real savings. ScoreMaster puts you in control of your finances. So enroll in minutes and see how many plus points you can add to your credit score at scoremaster.com slash just news at scoremaster.com slash just news. Go there now. This is a great deal.
0: Now, just for fun, mostly, we're going to take a look at a new Gallup poll. It's one that they do every year asking an open ended question of Americans. Who is the man they most admire? And they also ask, who is the woman they most admire? And it turns out that this year, this just in, President Trump has ended former President Barack Obama's winning streak. Now, Obama still ranks second, but President Trump edged him out this year. Where did Joe Biden fall? We'll have some details in a moment, but the summary is Joe Biden got about a third of the percentage that President Trump received. Michelle Obama, she was named... The Most Admired Woman for the third year in a row, followed by Kamala Harris, who got second place for Most Admired Woman. Where does the First Lady Melania Trump fit in? She comes in third. So let's look at some of the details in this poll. And you should be able to find this yourself if you're interested at news.gallup.com. Americans named President Donald Trump as the Most Admired Man in 2020. It's not unusual that the incumbent president gets the top spot. What was kind of unusual is that in recent years, even when Barack Obama wasn't president, he had been getting the top spot. In fact, he edged out Donald Trump previously, but now the script has been flipped. And so in the 74 times that Gallup has asked this open-ended question, who is the man you admire most, in the 74 times it's been asked since 1946, the current president at the time has topped the list 60 of those 74 times. When did that not happen? This is kind of interesting. The incumbent presidents who did not finish first in the past, did not get most admired, were Harry Truman in 1946 and 47, in and 1950, 51, and 52. Lyndon Johnson did not get first place in 67, 68. Richard Nixon did not get it in 73. Gerald Ford did not win it in 74-75. Jimmy Carter did not get it in 1980. George W. Bush did not get first place for Most Admired Man in 2008. And Trump did not get it in 2017 or 2018. Interestingly, and I don't know why this isn't mentioned in the Gallup press release, but Obama did not beat Trump in 2019. They tied. So both of them tied for the top spot, but that's still considered part of Obama's winning streak because even though Trump got the number one position, so did Obama. So um, this is interesting because Trump is very popular, but he is also very unpopular. Right now, according to Gallup, 39% approve of his performance, so not really even close to 50% that's counting Democrats and Republicans, of course, Republicans view Trump more favorably overall than Democrats do, 48% of Republicans named Trump as their most admired man, with no other figure under the Republican moniker receiving more than 2%. So pretty much Republicans lump all of their votes into one basket, and it's Trump. Now, for Obama, he got... About 32% of Democrats' votes. So Obama got 48% of Republicans. Obama got 32% of Democrats, which is down from 41% for Obama last year. So you may want to know where Joe Biden fits into all of this. Joe Biden is not even close to Donald Trump and Barack Obama. He got just 6% of people mentioning him as most admired man. He does a little better, of course, among Democrats, 13% 13% named him instead of Barack Obama as most their most admired man. Who else is on the list? Let's just go down starting from the top. Donald Trump, 18%. He's had 10 top 10 finishes on this list even before he was president. He was in the top 10 sometimes. Barack Obama, 15%. He's had 15 top 10 finishes. Joe Biden just 6%. He's had 2 top 10 finishes. Dr. Anthony Fauci Now we're just going down to one, two, and 3%. Dr. Fauci got 3% most admired. This is his first top 10 finish. Pope Francis got 2% of people saying he's their most admired man. He's been in the top 10 eight times. Elon Musk, 1% mentioned him. He's been in the top 10 four times. Bernie Sanders, 1% mentioned him. He's been in the top 10 six times. Bill Gates, 1% mentioned him. He's been in the top 10 21% times. LeBron James, 1%. This is his first time in the top 10. And the Dalai Lama, 1%. He's been in the top 10 11 times. So who else do some people name if they don't name someone famous that we know? Well, it's an open-ended question. They don't have to name somebody famous. And Gallup says 11% name a relative or a friend as the man they admire most, and 21%, oddly enough, did not offer an opinion in response to the open-ended question. Now, I mentioned that this year marks the 10th time that Trump has been in the top 10, and I said that he even made the list before he entered politics. Well, that happened four times, 1988 through 1990, so 88, 89, and 90, And 2011, Trump was also on the top 10 list. By the way, the Reverend Billy Graham, who died in 2018, he's the one who held the record, finished among the top 10 a record number of times, 61 during his lifetime. Who is the living man with the most top 10 most admired man finishes? That's former President Jimmy Carter. He has 29 times. So let's look at Gallup's entire list of the most Top 10 finishes among most admired men. And this will include both living and deceased. Number one with 61 times, Billy Graham. Ronald Reagan, 31 times. Followed by Jimmy Carter, 29. Pope John Paul II, 27 times. Bill Clinton, 26. Bill Gates, 21. Dwight Eisenhower, 21. Richard Nixon, 21. George H.W. Bush, 20, Harry Truman, 20, Nelson Mandela, 20, Ted Kennedy, 18, Winston Churchill, 17, George W. Bush, 17, Colin Powell, 16, Barack Obama, 15, and Douglas MacArthur, 15. Okay, let's take a look at the gals. Gallup has also asked the public to name the woman they admire most 71 times since 1948, And typically, a current or former first lady wins. That's happened 57 of 71 times. In fact, Gallup says that's been the case every year since 1997. most of those top wins, the woman they admire most, were Hillary Clinton. But Michelle Obama did get 2018 through 2020. And Laura Bush also finished first during that time period in 2001. This year, Gallup says 10% of Americans named Michelle Obama as their most admired woman. Let's look at the rest of the list. By the way, Michelle Obama's been in the top 10 13 times. But after Michelle Obama is Kamala Harris, 6% mentioned her. Melania Trump, 4% mentioned her. Oprah Winfrey, 3% mentioned her. She's been in the top 10 33 times. Angela Merkel, 2%. Hillary Clinton, 2%. She's been in the top 10 29 times. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, 2%. This is her first time in the top 10. Queen Elizabeth II, she's gotten 2%. And this is her 52nd time in top 10 finishes. Amy Coney Barrett, 1%. First time on the list. Greta Thunberg, 1%. This is her second time on the top 10. Other women named by 1% include singer Dolly Parton, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, Nobel Peace Prize laureate Malala Yousafzai, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, actress Betty White, and Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. And according to Gallup, 16% of Americans named a relative or a friend as the woman they admire most, and 19% decided not to answer or give their opinion at all. How about when it comes to party? Well, among Republicans who picked a woman, it was Melania Trump who led at 8%, followed by Barrett at 4% and Haley at 4%. Democrats were about as equally as likely to name Michelle Obama, 17%, and Harris, 16%, and about 5% named Ocasio-Cortez. Among the independents, this is kind of interesting, Michelle Obama led with 11%, whereas Melania Trump got 4% among independents. Remember, the men were split evenly between Obama and Trump among independents. Looking at the all-time list of top 10 finishes among women for most admired, Queen Elizabeth II, 52, Margaret Thatcher, 34, Oprah Winfrey, 33, Hillary Clinton, 29, followed by Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, 28, Mamie Eisenhower, 21, Barbara Bush, 20, Margaret Chase Smith, 20, Nancy Reagan, 19, Mother Teresa, 18, Claire Booth Luce, 18, Condoleezza Rice, Betty Ford, 17, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, also 17, along with Helen Keller, and then Pat Nixon at 15. So very interesting. And again, you can find the charts and figures at news.gallup.com, or you can also probably just Google or DuckDuckGo the terms Gallup and Most Admired Man 2020, and this article should come up for you. (laughs) Some of you may wonder what exactly made me so skeptical at times of the official story, whether the official story comes from local government, federal government, or a corporation. I talked about this in either my first book, Stonewalled, or my second book, The Smear. I talked about actually graduating from college and believing that the government had to tell you the truth, that if you ask them a point-blank question, they wouldn't or couldn't lie to you because it would be sort of on the record and in your face. And if you found out it was a lie, something really bad would happen. But I gave some anecdotes of how I came to fairly quickly learn through example and experience that the government frequently was not telling the truth, not giving the full story, not giving the accurate story on important stories that I was researching, starting in local news. And it really shook my world. It just sounds so naive coming at this decades later to think that I actually thought that people, when you ask them questions point blank or when they went on the record that they had to tell you the truth, it's actually often not the case. And of course, when I went from local news to national news, first at CNN and then CBS and PBS, the same continued to hold true whether I was investigating The Deepwater Horizon explosion and BP oil spill, which both the government and BP gave false information about, I was the reporter who exposed that far, far more oil was leaking into the ocean than BP and the Coast Guard and the government had represented, intentionally misrepresented, in fact. That reminds me that when CBS first asked me to start looking into the BP oil spill and Deepwater Horizon mess... It was about three weeks after the accident and they didn't think we were breaking enough news. They thought there was a lot to be found. One of the first things I asked when I read up on it was, where's the video? Remember the video of all the oil coming out from under the ocean, that horrible video that was aired on a live feed ultimately around the world? Well, I'm the one that got that video released. Apparently for three weeks into this episode, not a single reporter had thought to ask where this video was or had thought that it even existed. I mean, I hadn't looked at it very long once CBS assigned me before one of the first questions, if not the first question I had was, where's the video? I knew that these big companies would not have these operations under the ocean without cameras on them. And so I first asked BP for the video and BP referred me to the Coast Guard, so I knew it existed. The Coast Guard, I then asked for the video, and they referred me back to BP. The Coast Guard was controlling the accident scene, but they were sending me around in a loop, each telling me that the other would have to give it to me, and of course, neither one would. So I filed a Freedom of Information Act request, and it was only with the help of some members of Congress did that request get fulfilled, because normally the federal agencies just ignore those requests these days. They just violate the law. But with the help of Senator Barbara Boxer, and then Congressman Ed Markey, and maybe one or two others, we got that video. And once we got a segment of video released, we were able to force that live feed that people saw that revealed a certain amount of oil coming out that then I reported on was far more than was being represented. So that's just one example. Almost every story I end up looking into turns out to be something like that, where a company or the government is misrepresenting some fact or spinning something out of context. And as a reporter, if you cover these types of stories, you learn that's the case. But I thought today it would be interesting to go back to the first story I did on a charity, a charity fraud, back at CBS News back in 2002. We all like to believe that charities or charitable organizations do good and have no ulterior motive or agenda other than the public good, particularly the one I'm going to tell you about that I investigated. But sadly, I learned that too often that's not the case, that even though there are well-meaning people that often tend to work at charitable organizations, there are also bad actors that work there too. And any time, of course, that large amounts of money are at stake, you can count on the possibility that there's going to be some sort of fraud or abuse So the charity I looked into in 2002 was the Red Cross. And through this investigation, I learned that the Red Cross is really one of the most powerful organizations, I think, in this country or in the world. Ranking it kind of close up there and tied into, in fact, the pharmaceutical industry in terms of influence, how they can sort of try to present themselves in a way that the news will not dare contradict what they like to think of as their stellar image and reputation. And I thought that, too, before I started looking into this, by the way. The Red Cross, who doesn't love the Red Cross? And a lot of great people work there. But what happened was I was clued into some scandals happening inside the Red Cross by some very good sources. I'll tell you more about that in a moment. But it enlightened me as to some fraud that was going on and just, quite frankly, sloppiness after the 9-11 disasters when so much money poured into the Red Cross from well-meaning people, Americans and others who wanted to help, find a way to help. And I thought I'd go over this three-part series that I did for CBS News and what I found, and then I'll give you some behind the scenes information about it. By the way, the record of these sorts of investigations is quickly kind of going down the memory hole. A lot of the videos of the investigations I did at CBS News are gone. I think in some cases they were wiped on purpose some years ago when I looked for some of the ones that became controversial because of the powerful interests that were impacted. But I think in some cases, this is just as the internet and the websites have migrated over to different forms, the videos have not gone with them. And I can't even find some of them. You should be able to find them on YouTube or other places. Some of them you can, but some of them you can't. And I don't know if that's by design or by accident. But the Red Cross is one of those series that I cannot find any videos of anymore, but I can find the transcripts still, and I'm repeating the transcripts on my website at CherylAtkinson.com, little by little of some of these investigations, so that if they disappear on the original websites entirely, I at least still have this record. So let's start with part one of my report, and quite brave of CBS to air this report. This was back when the news was doing this sort of thing. I don't think they would do it today, by and large, except maybe my show, Full Measure, the others would not dare take on a powerful interest. There are too many people of influence who have ways to keep these stories out of the public spotlight. Anyway, as I wrote back in 2002, the American Red Cross may be expert at responding to public disasters, but it turns out for years it has failed to get a grip on financial disasters at its local chapters. There were a couple of examples you could find spotty reports about, such as the fundraiser in Louisiana caught padding her own bank account with donations. There was a manager in Pennsylvania who embezzled to support her crack cocaine habit and the executive in Maryland who forged signatures on purchase orders meant for disaster victims. But the biggest scandal inside the Red Cross surfaced in New Jersey in 2001 and it was kept off the front pages, even though it ranks among the biggest charity frauds ever. At the center of the scandal is a man named Joseph Lickiewicz, chief executive of the Hudson County Chapter, and his bookkeeper, Catalina Escoto. Escoto allegedly gave herself at least $75,000 in bonuses. All told, prosecutors said that the duo stole well over a million dollars in Red Cross funds, squandering it on gambling and each other. The bookkeeper Escoto pleaded not guilty, Lekowitz died after he was indicted. But the prosecutor told me that the bookkeeping methods of Lekowitz and Escoto left a lot to be desired. The New Jersey fiasco, where donations and government grants were stolen, all happened right under the nose of Red Cross headquarters. And critics were saying that the reason the Red Cross had so little control over its chapters is that the chapters are pulling the strings. They collect most of the donations for the Red Cross. They dominate the national board, and they resist tighter controls by headquarters. Now, back in 1999, a couple of years before I started this series of reporting, Dr. Bernadine Healy was chosen to head the organization, the Red Cross, former head of the National Institutes of Health. Said to be stunned by what she saw as a cavalier attitude in New Jersey, she wrote a scathing confidential memo, which I obtained, to the Red Cross Audit Committee, she wrote, quote, "Many of the controls presumed by you and senior management to be in place are not there." This is Dr. Healy's memo to the Red Cross Audit Committee on April third, two thousand one. And if you go to my website and hit under under in, other investigations under the Special Investigations tab, and look under Red Cross, and if you are curious to see some of these documents I refer to. You can find them linked. This is the April third, two 2001 memo from Dr. Healy. A routine audit of the Hudson County chapter identified financial mismanagement of a potentially criminal nature. She called the reviews by the external auditor for the Red Cross, KPMG, inadequate because the chapters often were not, she said, giving details of their finances to headquarters. So how could they be audited? And in the most telling statement of all, Dr. Healy wrote, We cannot assure the accuracy of financial statements provided to the IRS. This appears to be a major business and legal risk that would impact many of KPMG's certifications of the Red Cross. As an aside, I learned covering the Enron scandal with the auditor, Arthur Anderson, that a lot of audits are sort of pro forma, meaning they go through the motions, but they're not really auditing much of anything, sad to say. KPMG wouldn't comment when I asked them about this, by the way, but the Red Cross says that the criticism from its president at the time, Dr. Healy, was way off mark. Jack Campbell, the chief financial officer for the Red Cross, denied that there had been any problems, said he was satisfied with the financial accountability of the chapters. He said, I think we have an extremely solid system of accountability of our chapters, both in terms of financial reporting, internal audits, and local guidance and governance. Regarding the fraud in Hudson County that allegedly went undetected for years, Campbell said, well, no control system is perfect, which is true, but there's a lot more to what was happening inside the Red Cross. Dr. Healy, clearly the odd man out and wanting stronger chapter accountability, the head of this charity, left the Red Cross a few months before I started reporting this series. And she was a CBS News contributor and wouldn't be interviewed on camera for my reporting. But not long after she raised those questions about the chapter's actions, her concerns were confirmed, surprisingly by the Red Cross's own auditors. I obtained a report that highlighted some of the trends at the local chapters. It said payroll, inappropriate or incorrect, financial reports not prepared or not accurate, blank checks are accessible, national disaster contributions are not remitted to national headquarters. Let me say that again. National disaster contributions given to the local chapters were not always being remitted or given to the national headquarters. Weeks after this report, the terrorists struck on 9-11, and the Red Cross rushed special investigative auditors to see what the chapters were doing with the millions in donations pouring in. We'll talk about that right after a short break we're back and I'm talking about one of the first investigations I did at CBS News into charitable spending it was the Red Cross and this was the first work that I did that was recognized with an Emmy Award and this is back when CBS News and other news outlets were doing What I didn't see at the time was particularly brave, but I guess in retrospect, I look at it that way because now many news organizations will not go up against powerful interests, even when the reporting is impactful, and obviously in the case of my reporting, felt it was very accurate and fair. They just won't do it anymore. It's not worth the headache, or there are too many powerful interests that are pulling strings and able to keep this sort of reporting off of television and off the pages of the Internet. And even these reports and the videos are disappearing over time. I'm trying to collect and gather some of my work from CBS News and preserve it at CherylAtkinson.com. Look under special investigations for some of that. But in part two of the report I did on the American Red Cross, I'm talking about what happened to the September 11th donations that poured into the Red Cross. In the hours after the attacks, there was a record-breaking amount of donations. And they were going to more than a thousand local American Red Cross chapters, but what donors didn't know was that some of the chapters entrusted with all of that money had been identified by Red Cross headquarters just a few weeks before for having poor accounting procedures, inaccurate financial reports, and for keeping national disaster contributions that should have been sent to headquarters in Washington. And That was according to internal documents that I obtained. Now the Red Cross already wasn't known for keeping a very tight rein on its chapters but now it was suddenly crucial for headquarters to find out what the chapters were doing with the millions of dollars they were getting in september 11th donations so i found out that the red cross leadership rushed special investigative auditors out to conduct surprise inspections and the results which i obtained were startling a dozen of the red cross chapters audited were marking or coding the donations they got as local funds. What does that mean? Well, this means chapters like San Diego, Southwest Florida, and Gateway Area, Iowa, were keeping the money instead of sending it in for September 11th victims, which is what it was meant for. What's more, when it came to the Savannah chapter, auditors said the chapter, quote, could not provide information regarding cash and checks collected. In Pine Tree, Maine, the auditor said, quote, cash and checks were unlocked at all times. And in the Los Angeles chapter, there had been, quote, no accurate accounting for funds received after September 11th, believed already to total at least one half million dollars. Now think about this. These local chapters are literally getting people dropping off tons, you know, almost bucket loads of cash and there's little to no accounting at some chapters, no chain of custody, no marking of how much came in from whom. Sometimes it was being stored in a vehicle in back of a chapter. There was no way to know if somebody at the chapter was skimming a little bit, a lot of it, there was just no way to tell. And again, these chapters in some cases had been flagged just a short time before for their sloppy procedures and in some cases worse. The fact that the San Diego chapter was coding donations as local, meaning keeping them, instead of sending them where they belonged to national headquarters for 9-11 victims, that was no surprise to County Supervisor Diane Jacobs, who had been fighting the chapter for over a year for lack of accountability for fire donations and issuing a doctored audit. She said, the local chapters are operating independently. They're on their own. There's lack of oversight and lack of accountability. Now, sources told me that the National Red Cross singled out the nearly 30 chapters for surprise audits because of their recent financial problems, sloppy accounting and worse. In fact, they were nicknamed by some inside the Red Cross as the Dirty 30. But outsiders didn't know that. And when Red Cross officials answered questions from Congress, they made it seem like there were no problems. They certainly didn't disclose any of the things that I was now reporting. And then, the Red Cross actually defended the chapters when I brought up some of these issues that had been flagged by auditors. A Red Cross official said they had the discretion to keep the money because headquarters hadn't yet issued them any guidance, and maybe Red Cross officials said maybe they thought the money was in response to their other local fundraising efforts, maybe people were bringing money in not for the nine eleven victims but because There was just random fundraising going on for local fires, and that's why all the money was coming into the chapters. Jack Campbell, then the chief financial officer for the Red Cross, said he was not troubled by the results of the audit, that the chapters, he said, were right to think that some of the money that began pouring in the day after 9-11 was not really meant for 9-11. After the audits, he says, the Red Cross finally did require chapters to send in all that money that they had received, so... Jack Campbell, again the chief financial officer, claimed no harm was really done, and the Red Cross also said it imposed a rigorous set of additional procedures and more national oversight of chapters after the audits. Daniel Borachoff, president of the American Institute of Philanthropy, a charitable watchdog, told me that it just shows the Red Cross should be subject to state oversight like other charities, but was currently only subject to federal oversight. The stresses of 9-11 ended up bringing to a head something else that I learned about that nobody had reported on, a power struggle internally that had long been festering inside the Red Cross. For a little bit of background, ordinarily, national disaster donations to the Red Cross go into the charity's National Disaster Fund. The chapters are supposed to be self-sufficient, but they can dip into the National Fund when they need a little help but I learned that sometimes apparently they need a lot. The year before I reported on this series, the chapters had dipped into the National Disaster Fund more than 3,000 times. Now some at the Red Cross headquarters were afraid that the National Disaster Fund had become what they called a leaky piggy bank for the chapters. And there was no routine follow-up to make sure the chapters were spending the money the way they said they were. And Even the Red Cross's own auditors admitted that they couldn't always tell. For example, according to audit documents I looked at, money given to the Red Cross Boston chapter was, quote, not easily traceable, and national disaster funds were allegedly stolen in a million-dollar embezzlement at the Hudson County, New Jersey chapter that I mentioned previously. All reasons why, when the terrorists struck on 9-11, then-president of the Red Cross, Dr. Bernadine Healy, moved quickly To try to segregate or keep the 9-11 donations separate from the national disaster fund where she thought they could be misused not used the way donors intended and instead she put them in a new account that the chapters couldn't touch called the liberty fund made sense if you know about what the audits had found and what some of the chapters were doing in a september 2001 news conference where dr healy announced this she said this will not be commingled with monies in our other disaster relief funds. In other words, she's trying to ensure donor intent when people give money for 9-11 victims or 9-11 purposes that it was not used for unrelated things by the local chapters. But starting that Liberty Fund might've been Dr. Healy's downfall. Chapters that felt the September 11th money should have gone to the National Disaster Fund where they would have access to any leftovers, they went ballistic and started complaining to the chapter-dominated Red Cross board. Healy's decision to keep that 9-11 money specifically in a 9-11 fund prompted one Red Cross board member to fire off a blistering memo that I got a hold of. It said, My phone has been ringing off the hook with chapters, angry about the Liberty Fund. Creating a separate fund, said this memo, is unacceptable. I have no intention of ignoring this. A few weeks later, Dr. Healy was forced out as head of the Red Cross. The Red Cross said leaving was her idea, but if you look at video at the time, as I wrote in my report, her face told the story. In October, 2001, David McLaughlin, chairman of the Red Cross board announced Healy's resignation at a news conference at Red Cross headquarters in Washington, D.C. And again, Dr. Healy would not be interviewed on camera for the report that I did, but during the news conference, McLaughlin told employees I don't say it's the best thing for the Red Cross, but I think Dr. Healy thinks it's the best thing. And while he was announcing that she was leaving as if it was her idea, Dr. Healy was shaking her head no. And when she tried to speak, McLaughlin cut her off at the news conference. Now, the chief financial officer told me for this report that There is no danger the chapters will misspend money from the National Disaster Fund because they have policies in place proving they are trustworthy, and he just completely denied there had been any internal concerns. Here's what he said. There has never been any high level of concern at all about the disaster relief funds. The disaster relief fund is there as a vehicle to fund major disaster operations and to assist chapters in funding local operations. Again, Dr. Healy thought this was completely wrong the donor intent when giving money is paramount and is supposed to dictate how the funds are spent. So when people are giving money for nine eleven victims, she said they don't think or believe that money could go help some local chapter that may not be managing itself properly or taking proper account of its funds and spending that on something unrelated. But the Red Cross was pledging, as I was doing this report, complete transparency, said our records are an open book. However, They wouldn't let me see which chapters get how much money from the National Disaster Fund because I asked to see the books. They only told me that it's mostly small amounts going to small chapters, and it totaled $5 million the year before I did my report. However, information I was able to obtain showed that the chapters actually pulled more than twice that amount from the National Disaster Fund. And many of them were not small chapters. They were big chapters getting from $10,000 to more than $100,000. So again, money from the Red Cross National Disaster Fund, which in many cases was intended for something very specific. Donors gave money to help 9-11 victims. Could ultimately go to chapters that had been flagged by auditors as not keeping proper accounting of their funds, perhaps even embezzlement and other issues. They were being allowed to pull from this fund. So this is a super controversial thing to be exposing about a very powerful charity. And after my stories aired, I can't remember if it was just after part one or after all three parts aired on three separate nights at CBS News, the Red Cross actually had the nerve to post on its home page, on its front page, that CBS News had reported this story. It was completely wrong and had never come to the Red Cross to ask for an on-camera interview. And of course, that was entirely false. I had been asking the Red Cross over a period of months for an on-camera interview. And fortunately, and I've learned to really document a lot of my efforts along these lines when I deal with politicians and companies and charities, fortunately, I had the whole email chain So even though they were saying we had never reached out to them, I had the back and forth that went on very politely on my part, very persistent, asking them to tell their side of the story, asking them to appear on camera and be heard, telling them that I would accommodate them at a time and place of their convenience, coming back at them when they refused, asking them again and again. So this whole news that they were putting out to their chapters and to their supporters on their homepage that we never asked them for an interview, completely false. And along the way, maybe you would wonder if they're denying everything that I'm telling them that I know about, how can I have the confidence to move forward with a story? And I can tell you now because she's passed away, but Dr. Bernadine Healy was one of my sources. She couldn't speak on camera, but she had told me, gosh, from months before I started investigating the Red Cross, when she would appear on CBS News as a consultant off-camera, if we were in the same room together, we would chit-chat a little bit, and she told me a few things like, the Red Cross blood supply is a bloody mess. I remember her saying that phrase to me several times. I ended up looking into that, and it was. I have to agree with her. I did some investigating on that, too. But she also told me about the internal power struggles, and she was one of the sources from whom I got the audits and some of the documents so I knew that my information was solid because it was coming from a first hand source so every time the red cross when I would ask these questions would tell me the audits didn't exist the information wasn't true there was no internal power struggle there was no internal conflict i knew that was completely false because my sources were some of the best including the former head of the organization who had all the documents Now that I learned quite a bit about the Red Cross and did some reporting on it, there are a lot of terrific people who worked there who had more to tell. Volunteers and some employees at national headquarters and local chapters began contacting me and telling me about more problems. In fact, a lot of my sources for my investigations that look critically at government or companies, the sources come from inside, of course, people who actually like the government agencies or like the companies and are trying to do what's right. So you can get some of the best sources that way. People who are trying to actually save the organization, not necessarily hurt it. And I did quite a bit of investigating and reporting on mismanagement of the Red Cross blood supply and funds. And I began to see the power of the Red Cross flexing its muscles as we did more and more reporting on this, which was very well received at the time by my CBS bosses, the executives there, who appreciated the sort of reporting and encouraged it. But the worm turned a little bit after a couple of years, as more disasters would happen. And I kind of stayed on the Red Cross's tail, trying to hold them accountable when so much money was coming into their treasury. And it got to be at some point with a lot of stories, and this was one of them, that I got sort of what I call a squidgy feeling doing really good reporting, but feeling like somewhere up the chain they didn't really want these stories. And someone did mention to me at one point in time when I was investigating these stories and turning new information that there was somebody at the CBS Corporation who was on the Red Cross board and weighing in on the notion that should we really be doing all of these stories that could make the Red Cross look bad? And I think back to my time that even when I worked at CNN as an anchor, back in the 1990 time period, and there would be disasters. The Red Cross somehow got us at CNN to cut them or record for them what were basically commercials or public service announcements telling people to give to the Red Cross. And I remember thinking at the time, should news reporters really be doing that? I mean, yes, it seems like a good cause. Everybody loves the Red Cross. But for the very reasons that I've discussed, that I reported on in my series, I don't think news reporters should be getting behind in an advocacy sense, even something that looks like a a good charitable mission. That may not be a good idea because it's a conflict of interest when news comes up later. And I wrote about this, I think, in my second book, The Smear, when I was finally reporting on a Red Cross disaster scandal some years later. That story was ultimately stopped, and I had a conversation With a mid level executive who kept coming at me and kind of harassing me about the investigation I was working on, which was wanted at the time by the executive producer of the program, but there was some sort of internal conflict over it, I could tell. And this person told me that this was just not a good time and not a good idea to do a story about the Red Cross that didn't reflect well on the Red Cross. And as some of you know, if you've read my books or listened to me talk about this before, That became more and more commonplace until by around the 2014 time period, there were hardly any stories that I could investigate, whether they had to do with corporations or politics or charities or anything that would get on the air without this sort of pushback coming from some level somewhere. And I concluded that powerful interests had really found a way to block and influence almost anything we could do of meaning. And they did it by contacting the companies directly, the news organizations. They do it by using social media to controversialize the reporter or the news outlet that could be doing the report that harms their interests or their donors. And they use their partners in the media, these blogs and quasi-news organizations. We may be talking about Mother Jones and Slate and Vox and the propaganda groups like Media Matters. They all get on board with this effort to try to controversialize the good off-narrative reporting that are against, they perceive to be against these powerful political or corporate interests that they're, in essence, working for. And they all get on board together, say the same thing, controversialize or debunk or tinfoil half the reporting and the reporter, and the news organizations either don't want to or feel like they can't stand up to that kind of pressure, and they'd rather just go in a different direction that doesn't cause any headaches or get them potentially deplatformed off of these powerful social media companies. So I hope you found this behind-the-scenes discussion of the Red Cross Emmy Award-winning series from 2002 interesting. And maybe we can do some more of that on some of the other stories that turned out to be quite important that I reported on over the years. Because trust me, they all have interesting behind-the-scenes stories that go with them. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Check out justthenews.com and don't forget to subscribe to the Cheryl Atkinson podcast. Share it with your friends. Leave a great review. Also, check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, and all of the Just the News podcasts wherever you like to listen slanted how the news media taught us to love censorship and hate journalism is my new bestseller. it's out now read the reviews on amazon that might help convince you that there's information in slanted that you need do your own research make up your own mind think for yourself
1: This is the Black Friday special for the holiday season. Just for my listeners, the Clean Phone, the top brand in UV sanitizing, is now offering their top-rated, top-selling, best-reviewed wand product at 50% off and free two-day shipping. That's a great deal. The Clean Phone Wand is a handheld UV sanitizer that helps you eliminate 99.9% of bacteria and kill viruses in seconds on virtually any surface. It uses the same proven sanitizing technology employed by hospitals. Who wouldn't want that in your home? You can use it on packages, groceries, keyboards, tablets, money. Take it with you everywhere at 50% off and free two-day shipping for a limited time. It's the perfect gift for anyone who needs it. It's super portable, and with days of battery life, you can take it anywhere and make sure your environment is clean and safe. COVID cases are on the rise, so get the Clean Phone Wand at 50% off right now, and they'll take 60% off a second wand. That's a great holiday gift for your family and your friends. So go to JustTheNewsShop.com, that's JustTheNewsShop.com, and get your Clean Phone Wand right now. This is an early Black Friday special, so don't miss out. Go to JustTheNewsShop.com right now.